Christmas. I would uh, take this opportunity before I forget later to remind you that we will be having our Christmas Eve candlelight service tonight, uh, same place at 6 p.m. I would encourage you to be here and to come a little bit early so you can get a good seat. And I would encourage you as well to uh, invite a friend to that. It's a uh, pretty low bar to invite someone to a Christmas service. Uh, it's not like a regular Sunday, though uh, it is on a Sunday, and though they will hear the gospel proclaimed, but somehow there's an, uh, a category in people's minds that in Christmas time we ought to go to church, and I appreciate that category, and let's take uh, advantage of that. Uh, let's use that opportunity to invite uh, people to church even this evening. I would encourage you to open your Bible to John chapter 1. We have been spending this month of December going through the beginnings of each gospel, just looking at what um, each gospel writer uh, uses to begin his gospel account. And of course, we have the nativity in a couple of them. We have things like that. But here we are to the gospel of John. And we're going to read verses 1 through 18 of that. Gospel of John chapter 1 starting in verse 1. Let's listen to the inspired, inerrant word of our God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. 
Father, we pause on this very important day. This is the Lord's day. This is when we join together and open your word. We join together in song, and we join together in prayer as you've commanded. And this Lord's Day is special in that it is Christmas Eve. It's the day before we celebrate Jesus being born as a little baby into this world. And so we want to focus particularly on the birth of Christ and what that means. And in doing so, we turn to the Gospel of John and we look at John's account. And in this account, we wrestle with big ideas. We wrestle with large truths. And as we do so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts by your Spirit. That we would see what you intend from this passage. And Father, I pray as well that you would send your Spirit during this time, that as we read and discuss these words, as we read about and discuss your Son, we pray that your Spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would sense your love for us, that would cause you to take such action that we would sense that love and that we would appreciate it for what it is, that almighty, infinite, holy God would love sinful creatures like us. So we pray that in these next few minutes together you would do a work in our hearts, that we would see your loving hand at work in sending your Son for us. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have worked our way through the beginnings of each of the Gospels and have come now to the fourth Gospel, we have seen that each Gospel begins in its own way. And if you think about what a Gospel is, it's the telling not just of the life of Jesus, but really the purpose of His coming and who He is and what He taught and what He did and, and of course, about His death and His burial and His resurrection. Each gospel encompasses those truths, but they each kind of begin in a different way. And Matthew began with his genealogy and then moved on from there to the birth of Christ. And we saw a little bit different thing with Mark, that Mark begins by focusing on John the Baptist and his ministry to prepare for Christ's coming. John who came on the scene in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And then last week we looked at Luke and we saw that Luke begins with the focus on the fact that these events we read about in the gospel accounts are not just stories, not just myths, not just ideas, including angels speaking to people and the virgin birth. Those things Luke researched and talked to people and did the work of an historian in confirming that these events happened in history. They're real and true events, not just beautiful ideas. Well, we come to the Gospel of John, and of course, John is a little bit different. The other three Gospels are called synoptic Gospels. They give a synopsis of the life of Christ, and, and they follow a very similar pattern to one another. And then you come to John. 
and John is different. It's given in a different way. And John's concern, particularly here in the beginning, in this first chapter as we look at it, his concern right off the bat is about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. What's special about Jesus? And so we turn to our passage today and we're going to work our way through it and make a few comments on each verse and on each uh, truth that we run across here. And then we're going to tie it all together by looking at the end at what some implications are and, and what some applications are in our lives. But we turn to these very famous words right off the bat. And we see the discussion of who is Jesus. And John uses uh, common words. Actually, when you are uh, studying Greek in seminary and you're just beginning to get a grasp on the Greek language, and so your language is pretty basic, uh, you, they take you to uh, the epistles of John and the gospel of John to do a lot of your reading because he uses small words, which we appreciate as uh, students of uh, foreign languages. He uses small words, he uses simple constructions, but, but you would be wrong, of course, if you thought that he wasn't communicating deep truths. And that's the way we see it even here in verse 1, where he starts off with the simple words, in the beginning, reminding us of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word. Now, just tip you off right now that the Word is Jesus. The Word is the Son of God. I know that's going to come really as a punchline a little bit later, but uh, we've read this before and we understand we're talking about the Son of God, but what's fascinating here is he starts off by saying, in the beginning, at that very moment of creation, when, when God was just beginning creation, at that very beginning, at that moment, the Word already existed. He was already there. He's eternal. He was uh, existent, uh, existing before. And so the Word is eternal. He was already present when, when it, creation was initiated, the very beginning. It doesn't say the first thing created was the Word. It says when creation first began in the beginning was the Word. And then he continues, not just is this Word eternal or existing even beyond the beginning, before the beginning, and the Word was with God. But somehow, this Word, though He's eternal, He existed before the beginning of anything, before the beginning of creation, He's with God. He's in some way distinguishable from God. He's there present with God, but in some way distinguishable. And of course, in the New Testament, we have a development of the language of not just God generally, but we have language of the Father and we learn about the Son, and we learn about the Spirit, and, and what's being discussed here is really the relationship between the Son and the Father. That in the beginning, the Son already existed, and the Son can be distinguished from the Father, but look at the third line there. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. There is a unity between Father and Son. There is a unity between Word and God. That though we can distinguish Father from Son, for example, yet they are both God. 
They're not pieces of God. Fully God. The word was God, or you might translate it, what God was. The word was. And so we start off with a very high Christology, a very high understanding of who is this word. He's not just a great prophet. He's not even a great angel. He's higher than all of those. He's God Himself. The Word was God. They are one in essence. And of course, what we're talking about here is the Trinity. And it's uh, a very difficult concept to wrap your mind around. In fact, it's not possible for finite beings to wrap our minds all the way around the Trinity but we can get an idea of what is being said here. For example, in the Catechism for Boys and Girls, we have a question. Are there more gods than one, the Catechism asks? No, there is only one God. Okay, good answer. Next question, in how many persons does this one God exist? Answer, in three persons. Question, who are they? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's not my purpose this morning to uh, detail or delineate the uh, doctrine of the Trinity in any kind of fullness, but we do want to point out that that's what's wrapped up in these couple of verses, that John is laying out that truth for us, that there is, uh, that this Word is eternal. And this word is distinguishable from the Father, but this word has a great unity with the Father so that they are one in essence. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. This word... This logos, this concept that's being discussed here, this word is involved in the very creation of the world. In fact, not just the creation of the world, not just the creation of specific things as if the word was brought in to help with this or that. No, there's not anything made that wasn't made by him. Anything created was created by him. That's we're talking about the highest possible person. We're talking about who this Word is, that He's eternal, He's one with God. He's God and He's Creator. And we continue in verse 4. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This, this word gives light and gives life. You see, the picture that's being painted here of Jesus is, is it's not contrast exactly from the babe in the manger, but it's giving a fuller picture of what the babe in the manger means. That when we talk about Jesus born as a baby, we are talking about the word. We're talking about this one who is God Himself. The Word gives life, the Word gives light, and the light shines in the darkness and gives light 
that darkness can't overcome it. And so, if you think about the importance of light, you know, if, you, if you're staying in a strange place, a house that's not yours or in a hotel room or something like that, the, if you want to lower your risk of stubbing your toe on the coffee table, which I recommend, if you want to lower your risk of stepping on a Lego, just turn on the light, right? The light helps, the light shows, the light illumines. It makes visible what is there. And, and John is saying Jesus coming into the world is that. He's illuminating things. He's helping us to understand. He's helping us to see what is going on in reality. And that's who Jesus is. He gives life and He gives light. And so what's special about Jesus that John wants us to know from the very start is that Jesus, whose birthday we celebrate tomorrow, is the eternal, divine Word of God, the Creator of all things, who gives light to people who were formerly in darkness. That's who we're talking about. So John starts with a, a different uh, a feel than the other Gospels, but that's what he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand who Jesus is, who it is that we are talking about. But he moves on in his discussion to talk about what people thought of him. In other words, when this utterly unique and most important person who has ever been born came into the world, how was he received? So that brings us to our second point. We turn to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so we've read about John the Baptist before, and we know that he's the one that comes on the scene to announce, to prepare the, uh, the way of the one to come. And here he's announcing the presence of the light. Why would you need to announce the presence of the one who's going to be the light? Wouldn't the light be noticeable? Well, not necessarily, not in the way we might think. I remember a few years back, there was some special lunar event going on. And I don't remember if it was some super blood moon. I, I don't know what exactly it was. But there was going to be something unique about the moon that night. And of course, as, as you would expect, it was going to take place in the middle of the night. And the moon was going to change colors. And it was going to be enormous. And it was going to be orange or red. And it was going to, it was going to be beautiful. And, and it was supposed to be something that not, wasn't going to happen for another you know, number of decades. And I thought, hey, the kids need to see this. All right, They need to see this thing. And so... I waited up and, uh, you know, midnight or whenever it was supposed to start, and I wake up the kids to get them outside so they can stand on the front porch with their blankets on, you know, and look at the moon. And, and uh, why? Because they, they needed to be awakened. They were going to sleep right through the whole event. The, the, the moon changing colors. The moon doing a very weird thing, like a display for us, and it's beautiful and and the kids were going to sleep right through it. And so I went in to wake them up. Now, you know how the story ends, right? They couldn't care less. 
they're just cold. They're up in the middle of the night. What are we doing out here? Dad, it's just orange. Who cares, right? They, they didn't really appreciate the beauty of what was going on, but, but I needed to wake them up so that they could observe the light, and that's what John was doing, and John came on the scene for that purpose. You know, the question we're asking here is, how did the people receive Jesus? And, and if you think about the, the, the eternal one coming on the scene, the one who created all things, the one who was there in the beginning with the Father, came on the scene, you would think there, there would have been fanfare. You would have expected that everyone would have bowed down and recognized their Creator. And so we look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The eternal one, the Creator, coming into the world. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Here He is, the Creator of this world, who has somehow entered into this world, born as a little baby, comes on the scene, grows up to be a man. He was in the world. The world was made through Him yet the world did not know him. Do you hear the injustice there? He's the most important, most significant, most outstanding person ever. And the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And we can think about this in general terms. We can think about the fact that He created all things, that He's the Creator, and He shows up, and the creation doesn't recognize Him as the Creator, so that He came to His own. His own people didn't recognize Him. And that's true, and that's tragic, but it's, it's even worse than that. Because when it's talking about coming to His own and His own people not receiving Him, He's talking particularly about the nation of Israel. He's talking particularly about people that He had been warning for literally thousands of years that this one's going to show up on the scene. And he shows up on the scene as he said he would do, and nobody noticed. Not literally nobody, but virtually nobody even paid attention to the fact that he was there. And there's a, there's a warning here for us. Before we go on, there's a warning. How many times, how many times have you heard the Bible opened up and taught? How many times have you been presented with uh, the truth of who Jesus is? How many times have you been warned like the nation of Israel was warned? And how many times has Christ been proclaimed and, and, and you just let it go in one ear and out the other? Don't, don't let this opportunity pass. Don't don't be in the same category as these people that Jesus came to his own and his own people didn't even recognize him, didn't receive him. Folks, this is an opportunity that we have and we live in a wonderful time where we get to hear the word of God proclaimed regularly. And if you, if you happen to space out, I can't imagine anyone would ever space out during a service, but if you happened to space out, you can dial it up tomorrow and listen again. We have such opportunity, but don't let this opportunity pass. 
where you hear about Christ, you hear about your need for him, and you see that God has met that need in Christ, that your own sin makes you abhorrent to God because of your rebellion against him and your re- rejection of him, and, 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 and that's your sin, that's your problem, but then you hear about Christ who came on the scene specifically to deal with that problem, that he would take upon himself the penalty for sin, that he, would, that he would himself be obedient in his life, not rebellious, but always obedient to his Father, that he would do that, go to the cross, bear the penalty for the sins of sinners, and die in our place. And then God raised him from the dead. That, don't let that message pass you by again. Don't be like these people in this verse where he came to his own And his own people did not receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Most people did not receive him. Many people did not receive him. But there were those. There were those who did. Who did receive him. Who did respond in faith to him. And those people, he gave them a very special gift. He gave them the gift of becoming a child of God. And you hear the implication there, right? If you become something, that means you were not it before. What John is hinting at here in the New Testament and really all of the Bible is very clear about is that not every person born is a child of God. It's something you must become by faith in Christ. You go from being outside his family to being brought into his family when you receive him, when you believe in him. And so he says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, to be brought right in, to receive that benefit, to receive that inheritance because of what Christ has done. But then he goes on and he comments about these people. What does it mean to be born? What does it mean to be a child of God? He says, verse 13, who were born not of blood, meaning you don't get to become a child of God because you have the right uh, parents or grandparents or uh, genetic line or something like that. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It takes God to give birth to a child of God. It doesn't come from uh, going to the right church. It doesn't come from being born into uh, the right family or, uh, or in the right country. It is an act of God that He gives life. It takes God to give birth to a child of God. It is the action of God. It is the will of God. It is not dependent upon man. It is His action. It takes God to give birth. And so we see this picture here that He wants us to understand. Jesus came on the scene. He was rejected by most, but some believed in Him. Some came to understand who He was. 
what he was doing and they trusted in him that they became children of God they were those who were born of God and so that's true for us this isn't just an historical description about something back then this is this is about you and me now that we were born not as children of God we need to become children of God. We need to be born again. We need to trust in Christ. But how did most people react? Well, most people uh, reacted like they do today, right? You have some people who outright reject and say, no way, not a chance. They outright reject Christ. But that, that's probably not most people, at least not consciously. Most people consciously just couldn't care less. They really don't want to think about it. Yeah, Jesus, he's a nice guy or whatever. He's fine for you to worship or, or whatever. But don't bother me with that stuff. And so that's a type of rejection. But there are a few. There are a few who put their faith in Christ and who are made children of God. Well, there's one more question that John wants to deal with before he wraps things up here, and that's why did he come? Why did he come? Why this word? And why did the word come? Well, he spells it out beginning there in verse 14. He said, and the word, remember this one that was in the beginning, the one who created all things, the one who is one with the Father, yet distinguishable from the Father, the one who gives life, the one who gives light, the word became flesh. Jesus is not a concept the Son of God is not a, an idea, a notion, a beautiful philosophy. The Word became flesh, like you and me. What a wonderful truth. What an amazing thing. And there are those who would say, no, uh, uh, God is spirit, and spirit is good, and matter is evil, flesh is evil, uh, this stuff is, is evil, and so it's not possible. And John is saying, oh, almighty, infinite God, the Word became flesh. What that tells us is that the problem that we have is not because we are physical beings. The problem is spiritual. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. Whereas in the Old Testament, if you think back to, to what happened during the time of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, they had this tabernacle. And the tabernacle pictured for them, represented for them the presence of God in their midst. Remember, they would pack it up and they would take it to the next place and they would set it up again. And they would do that over and over. It, was, it represented God's presence in their midst. <clears throat> and then later on, the temple would do the same thing. The temple in Jerusalem in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, would represent the presence of God. And if you remember in the prophet Ezekiel, there comes a vision where because of the extended, perpetual, ongoing, unrepentant disobedience of the people, there comes a point when the glory of God departs the temple and leaves the land. What a heartbreaking event. What a heartbreaking episode for the people to experience and for the prophet to experience. The, 
the, the, the presence of God departing His people because of their sin. And here we have the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That whereas the tabernacle pictured the presence of God, Jesus is the literal presence of God, tabernacling among us in our midst. What a miracle is the incarnation. Paul talks about it in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The unique Son of God, the Word became flesh, was born as one of us, so that He might redeem us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John is dealing in some very deep topics here. He's talking about very grand truths about, about God taking on flesh, being born as one of us, that the Son would be born as the baby in Bethlehem to become one of us, and that is the revelation of God's glory. That is the revelation of God's glory in our midst, full of grace and truth. And in our few minutes together, it's difficult to try and wrap our minds around what all is going on here, all of the theology that's represented. So I, I want to boil it down to this. He is full of grace and truth. That Christ Himself who came on the scene, that He, the Son of God, born as a man, brings truth into the world. He is the reason for truth. He is the, the, the rock bottom of all truth. And He brings grace. See, the problem that you and I have, and John gets to it here in this last verse where he says, or in verse 17, the law was given through Moses. Was it gracious for God to give us the law? Is it gracious when you tell your child what the expectations are upon them? It is very gracious. A child likes to know where the boundaries are. What about you when you when you drive somewhere, when, you're, when you go into a strange part of town, not Fallon, but Reno or, or somewhere in California, you're driving somewhere else, and do you feel a little odd when you can't remember the last speed limit sign you saw? 
and you're thinking, well, they're going to nab me right now? What's going to happen, right? You like to know what the boundaries are. Now, you may be one of those who makes the decision that, wow, the speed limit says 35, 42 is probably acceptable. You may do that. But you like to know what the boundaries are, and you feel very uneasy. Is it gracious that God gave us the law? Absolutely. Where God reveals to us His standard, that is a gracious thing that He would do that. The problem is the standard that He gives us is one we can't meet. The standard He gives us is is one that we continually rebel against. We're like that person who says, oh, it says 35, but 42 is probably okay. No, it says 35 because it means 35. When God says, you shall not lie, He means you shall not lie. When He says, you shall have no other gods before me, what do you think He means? You go through the Ten Commandments and look at what He says. That's a standard, folks, that you and I cannot meet. Not because it's so high, not because it's like telling someone to lift a million pounds, oh, we're just not physically able to do that. No, the problem is that what it says to do, you don't want to do. What it says avoid, what it says don't do, guess what you want to do? The problem is in here. And so though the law itself, the giving of the law, the fact that God gives us the law is a gracious thing, the law itself is not gracious. It is a standard. And when you and I look at that standard, we compare ourselves to that standard. We do not measure up. Again and again and again. We could sit here and I could sit with you one-on-one and go through the Ten Commandments just as a simple example. And, And we could see how you've broken each one and not just occasionally, not just that one time in your life. We have a sinful rebellion within us that, that drives us to want to disobey God's law. And so <clears throat> the law itself reveals to us our own need, our own guilt before God. <clears throat> Excuse me, and the law itself does not give grace. It's the standard. It's the bar. So where's our hope? Where can you and I have hope? The place we have hope is in Christ, full of grace and truth. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus comes on the scene, sent by the Father, Born as a little baby, but he grows up just like us, except without sin. Always obedient to God. Always and in every way and from the heart, joyfully rooted in love for God. Always obedient to God in every aspect, every corner of his life. He met the bar. And then the end of the gospel. He goes to the place of punishment for those who have not met the standard, those who have not kept the law. He he goes to the place of punishment for my sin so that the wrath of God called for in the law would be poured out upon Christ in my place so that the penalty that was due to me is placed upon him and executed in him. 
And he dies under that weight. He dies in that position, bearing the wrath of God for my sin. And then God raises him from the dead, indicating to us that that payment has been made, that payment has been acceptable. And here's the grace. The grace is that Jesus offers to us, to everyone who, believe, who will believe in him, he offers to us credit for that obedience and forgiveness for our sin. That's grace. And that grace is only available in Christ. That grace is only accomplished by what Christ has done. And what I want us to understand, we're going to conclude shortly, but what I want us to understand at this point is that why did the Father send the Son? What was the reason? Well, there are two reasons we can work together and and, uh, and, and Scripture teaches us about one is, uh, is, is the fact that He did it for His own glory. That, that God is glorified in the redemption of sinners like you and me. And so that's one of the reasons He did it. But what I want us to focus on, what I want us to see today and think about in this moment is the other reason why He did it. Love for you and me. That's why he did it. We need not to pass over that. I don't, I don't want us to, to skip that. So turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 describes for us what God has done. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you see the love of God in there? Do you see the love of God evidenced in the fact that He would give His own Son? If you don't see it there, go back to John chapter 3, a verse you already know. Why would God do that? Why would God go to that extreme? Why would He give up His Son and with Him graciously give us all things? Why would He be willing to do that? Because of John 3.16. It's love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Folks, what I want us to take away from our time today, what I want us to, to, to learn as we've looked at, at John chapter 1, as we've thought about who is this word? I want us to think about not just the magnificence of the fact that God Almighty would not just reveal Himself to us, but it would actually come into our midst in the person of Christ. That, that the Creator would enter creation 
that the infinite would, would step into limitation in his body, that the Son of God would become the Son of Man. Not only do I want to think about that, and that's what John wants us to think about, and that's where John starts, but where does John go? He goes right through John 3.16. He wants us to understand, and I want us to understand God's love for us that motivates him in doing this. That would bring it about so that the Son would enter into our world is because he loves us. And, and I want us to, to understand not only his motivation, but I want, want us to sense his love for us. We wrestle with sin, don't we? Sometimes we, we, we look at our sin, we observe uh, our own wickedness and our own temptations, and maybe it's our past or, or, or whatever. We think about those things and we think, wow, you know, I, 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 I get to be included uh, kind of, you know, um, because God's gracious and He's certainly gracious. But we get the sense that God's not probably really happy to have us in his family. Yeah, he includes us because he said he would and stuff like that, but what I want us to think about and come away with is the love of God that would motivate him to do this. That would motivate Christ himself to bear that sin, to come into this world and live amongst sinners I want us to think about that love. May it warm our hearts. May it uh, help us as we think about what Christmas means. And we're distracted by the, the gifts and we're distracted by um, the, 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 the marketing and, and we're distracted perhaps by the routine of Christmas. We're, distra- we're, we're, we're easily distracted and, and we, we try to remind ourselves it's about Jesus, it's about Jesus, but I really love that gift <laughs> and I hope I get that thing or I hope this person I got that gift for really likes it or, uh, or whatever. We, 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 we remind ourselves, but sometimes it's almost a discipline to remind ourselves it's about Jesus. Folks, here's what I want for each of us this year, is I want us to be struck by the love of God for us that would motivate Him to do that, that would motivate Him to give such a costly gift, the life of His Son. And He did that for His own glory, but in that He wraps in His love for us. And so if the Lord works that truth in our hearts, if the Lord lights a flame within us, a a, a sense of His love for us, it will be a merry Christmas. If we can remind ourselves, if if we can focus on what it is He's done and why He has done it, It will be the best Christmas we have ever had.
Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think we can, speaking for myself, and I'm probably not the only one, there are things that distract us from that truth of God's love for us as expressed in His Son given for us. But there is no greater love. And when we understand that love and when we, when we sense that love, when we're aware of, when we're conscious of that love for us, what a difference it makes in our lives. That the response for us to Him, understanding what His love really is, is a response from our own heart that we love Him more. But may we, may we come away from this Christmas being aware, being not just conscious, but sensing God's great love for us. And may that fuel our worship, may that fuel our gift giving, may that fuel our gratitude, may that fuel our Bible reading, may that fuel all of our lives as we realize that truth. Let's pray. Father, there is so much that we think about, that we balance, that we juggle, that we perhaps are distracted by that would draw our uh, thoughts away from your great love for us. It is not the only truth of Christmas, but it is a grand truth. I pray that we would be struck this morning and this Christmas season by your great sacrificial giving, generous, gracious love for us. Father, may your Spirit work that into our hearts, not just our minds, but into our hearts, into our thinking, into our praying, into our relationships, into our lives. And may Christ be lifted up because of that this Christmas holiday. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. I would remind you of the candlelight service that will begin tonight at 6 o'clock. Be here. Bring a friend for that. Uh, there will be a family who would love to pray with you up front, so please come up and pray with them. Otherwise, God bless you all. Merry Christmas, and you are dismissed.